Hello, Welcome everyone, to the new and thanks for Network. tuning in to this New Books Network podcast. My name is Catriona Gold, and I'm a PhD candidate at University College London. Today, I'm privileged to be speaking with Martin Yoglius about the new edition of his book, A Critical Theory of Police Power, The Fabrication of Social Order, which was published by Verso in 2021. Mark is Professor of the Critique of Political Economy at Brunel University in London, and is most well known for his previous work on police power and security, including the first edition of this book, which was originally published in 2000 and has been very influential. So I'm really looking forward to speaking with Mark about this new edition. Without further ado, thank you for joining me, Mark. Thank you. So I wonder if we could start with you telling us a bit about yourself and your academic trajectory, perhaps how you came to write this book originally. Yeah, of course. Um, Well, like you say, I'm Professor of the Critique of Political Economy at Brunel University, London. Um, My trajectory has been a long one because I've been an academic and a scholar and and an activist for some time. Um, And as you say, this this book is a, a new edition of what is a, a very old book, which is a book that was first titled The Fabrication of Social Order in, uh, twen- in 2000. Um, and it was subtitled A Critical Theory of Police Power. And so we've, we've um, reversed the subtitle and the title for this new edition. Um, and that book, uh, the first edition came out in a, uh, in a roundabout way, which was um, in my very first research, uh, which, which was an attempt to rethink the state civil society distinction, um, I tried to do that through the category of political administration. Um, and I realised what I was thinking about in political administration was a process of policing in the very broadest sense. You know, How does the state constitute civil society? How does the state administer civil society? How does it regulate it and reproduce it over and over? Um, now, in that original research back in the early 90s, I, I wasn't centrally interested in the concept of police, but my kind of uh, some of my theor- theoretical interlocutors, for example, Hegel and Foucault, both have much to say about the police um, and policing. And I was aware of this, but I didn't pursue it in the original research. Um, and then after that, I decided to write a, a book on fascism, on fascist political thought, which was the book that came out in 97. And if you read about fascism, you're constantly confronted with this, this, this phrase, the police state, as though we all know what that means. Um, and it's taken for granted that um, uh, the police state is clear to us because we're all good liberals. And so we know we don't like police states. And so this becomes a, becomes a very kind of shorthand way of describing fascist regimes and, of course, um, Stalinist regimes. Um, and in the book on fascism, I didn't really deal centrally with this notion of, of the police state, other than to say I didn't think it was a very useful term. So through the early mid 90s, I was constantly coming up against this idea of police, the idea of policing, police power, police states. Um, and I thought, well, actually, there's there's scope here for some, some, some arguments. Um, I looked at some of the work on police and I, I quickly realized that most of the um, work has a very narrow conception of police, locating it in the police force. Um, and there's very little political theory on the police power. So there's this kind of um, uh, disjuncture between, you know, criminological work, which focuses on the police force, the police institution, and some historical work, which has a much broader conception of the police power, which isn't just about the police institution. Um, And so I tried to, I was trying to write a book that used the concept of police power, developed the idea of police power, which was a far more uh, general concept than the police force or the police institution, but which could also help us make sense of the police force and what it does and how it's situated in, in the capitalist state and how it's, it's used by the capitalist state to, to administer civil society. So it's a broad argument about the police power, but it also tries to make an argument about police forces Um, And it comes really from my very, very first research, which was designed to 
kind of rethink the state civil society distinction and what the state does in relation to civil society and, and its administration. Okay, right. That's really helpful for yeah, situating us to this book. I mean, maybe you could talk us through some of the ways in, in which the existing approaches to police at the time you were writing this were, were sort of limited. Um, I know you write quite compellingly in this in this book about that, and I think it would be helpful for our listeners. So you've got, you know, a, a short critique of Foucauldian approaches to policing as well as sort of criminology approaches to policing. Can you tell me a bit about those? Yeah, sure. I mean, in relation to the criminological work, I was struck by the the ways in which criminology police science tends to simply take for granted the narrow conception of policing that we are expected to work with on an everyday level in other words policing is something that the police force does so if we're going to be engaged in criminological work on policing then we should be focusing our attention on what the police force do in other words if we're looking for what when the state polices, it, it, it polices through the police force. That's the kind of criminological approach. And what I wanted to do was to say, well, actually, the state polices through a whole range of other institutions that we now no longer describe as the police force. And we're often therefore encouraged to not think of as engaged in policing. And my argument is, well, actually, that's precisely what we should be doing. We should be thinking about these these, these state processes, these political um, institutions as engaged in policing in some form or another. So partly I was, um, I was worried that the criminological approach, the police science approach was too narrow. But then at the same time, some approaches which took seriously the, the broader concept of police, um, precisely the, if you mentioned the Foucauldian approach, the work that comes out of the work of Michel Foucault, um, you know, often they had very little to say about the police force, right? So it became, you know, for a lot of the Foucauldians at the time, it became a, another euphemism for, you know, governmentality, for example, or or power or discipline. And there's there's some use usefulness in that, but unfortunately, it, it sometimes loses sight of, if you like, the, 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 some of the specificities of the police institution set against other institutions which may engage in policing but, but but which don't have the same kind of specificities attached to to it so i was treading a, a line between those 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 two bodies of work but also i was i was looking back to um how should we describe it there's a if you like there's a, a body of work in in legal history which has a lot to say about the historical origins of police power which you know again is is far broader than simply dealing with with crime um, or law, um, and that's quite a, quite a rich legal history. Um, so I was also picking up on that, and picking up on the a, a long history in political theory, where political uh, theorists, political philosophers, had recognised the centrality of the police power to uh, to state power in general. Um, and some of those are, if you like, state theorists par excellence, such as Hegel or Fichte. But some of them were 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 liberals. Were now regarded are now regarded as part of the liberal liberal canon, part of the liberal pantheon. Um, Adam Smith, for example, uh, Montesquieu, you know, um, and they 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 also made very sustained arguments about the necessity for policing in um, policing of civil society by the state. Okay, right. So maybe that's something we could move to discuss more. So how how this the conception of, of police actually developed, you know, in sort of thinking about police through history. I mean, I think the way you, you use Marx and and these other thinkers to to go through that sort of history and changes in the nature of policing is really compelling. And I think probably for our listeners, the most interesting part might be how you see policing developing in line with the development of liberal thought. But maybe we could start from the beginning and say, well, what what was police about in the first place, if you like, or from where you start here? 
Yeah, so look, it's a big history and it's very difficult to just simply um, break history down into, into, into periods. Every kind of periodization creates problems of its own. Um, that said, um, I, what I do in the book is I try and say, look, you know, if we go back to the original police science that emerges in the 15th and into the 16th century and then really comes to the fore in the 17th and 18th century, you know, what we have is a, is a, is a very general notion of what police science involves, which is about, you know, the regulation of life in its fullest sense, but in particular, the regulation of, of work. Um, so work and life, right? In other words, everything. Um, but in particular, work. In other words, you know, how do we make sure that this, this newly emerging system that's you know, coming to the fore, that is eventually going to be known as capitalism, right? How do we make that work? How do we bring it into being and, and sustain it? And so what went by the name of police power in, in the early period was, you know, the whole set of regulations, rules, laws, orders, um, and even even you know customs and mores that through which a, a civil order is is regulated. So you know some people who were known as police scientists or on the continent you know, cameralists were theorists not just of what we now call the police institution, but they were theorists of state power in the most general sense of of, of the term. So you know included in the notion of policing. You know, were things like bridge building, street lighting, uh, public health, welfare, poverty. In other words, things that we don't now ordinarily associate with the police institution. Now, you know, Marx picks up on this. You mentioned Marx. So I'm just going to go there for a second. You know, Marx picks up on this in a very short and very succinct comment he makes in the in the early 1840s where he says, you know, police is the supreme concept of bourgeois society. It's quite an interesting, uh, quite a telling phrase, I think. And I've, 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 <laughs> I've worked with it in lots of different ways over the, over the decades. Because um, I think he was recognising, you know, not just the role of police in someone, in the work of someone like Hegel, who had spent a huge amount of time studying, but he was also recognising the role of, of policing in, in other more liberal thinkers um, than Hegel. Now, what's interesting about this history is that in the late 18th century, then into the 19th century, and then through that century, the 19th century, liberalism comes to kind of radically recast the notion of, of police. And it starts to try and narrow that notion down to the idea of the police force. And so that's where you get the emergence of what now, what then become known as police forces, police institutions, which become the kind of body of uniformed men, and they usually were men for a long time, uh, uniformed men uh, purportedly uh, dealing with crime and enforcing the law. But at the same time, the liberal state never really gives up the idea that policing has to be far more general than that the, 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 the acts carried out by the police force. So it's constantly kind of connecting up the police force to other institutions and, and always looking for those other institutions to, uh, if you like, you know, doff their cap in the direction of police forces. And I think that's what Marx is getting at, right? With the, the idea that, you know, the poli police is the supreme concept of bourgeois society because the ruling class knows that it must constantly police the social order not simply in the kind of the, the ways in which it tells us we have to be policed e.g you know criminals must be stopped but also the order itself must be made and remade time and again and that takes place not just through you know, the dealing with crime it takes place through a whole range of other mechanisms right yeah I think it would be really great if we could bring this down to earth a bit by talking about vagrancy laws, which you discuss at length and in a really compelling way. And so the, the, the issue of, of what's called vagrancy and how that connects to class struggle or the creation of capitalist kind of good 
order. Why was vagrancy law and the disciplining of vagrancy so important in policing? Right. Okay, yeah, nice, good question. Um, So vagrancy law has been fundamental to the development of capitalism. So for centuries, vagrancy law was one of the key mechanisms through which the working class was created. Because what vagrancy law does is it polices people away from forms of subsistence other than the wage. Right? So if you cannot find forms of subsistence on the street or in the fields or through wandering around begging or any other means, then you're forced to go and work for a wage. In other words, you're forced to become a proletarian, a wage earner, a worker. You're forced to sell your labor for a wage, which is precisely what capitalism needs. Yeah. So there's a whole history of vagrancy laws that are central to the establishment of capitalism. And these were the fundamental police laws, right? They are laws whereby people engaged in acts that police officers thought might be accessing means of subsistence other than the wage, you know, were stopped from doing so. Okay. And obviously this goes hand in hand with other acts such as the enclosures movement, right? If you, if you separate out uh, common lands and put them into private hands, then it means that the forms of subsistence that people might engage in on those common lands, you know, from picking wood, from picking fruits to, 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 to feeding, feeding a, pig, a pig or a goat or a cow or whatever, if you can no longer do that, then again, you're forced to go out and sell your labor for a wage. Okay, so vagrancy laws are essential to the creation of capitalism. Vagrancy laws are, if you like, the fundamental police power. Okay, so in other words, policing, police power, fundamental to the creation of capitalism. This immediately makes us think, well, in that sense, policing is far more interesting than what takes place through the uniformed police forces. Now, it's interesting, right, that that's a historical argument, but many states, um, including the UK, still have vagrancy laws on their books, on their books. So the UK is still heavily policed through the 1824 Vagrancy Act. In particular, uh, a few key sections of that act, because some of them have been repealed since then. But the key sections of the Vagrancy Act that are still in force are quite interesting because what they enable police officers to do, and this, and here I'm talking about police officers as in the police institution, the police force, what they enable police officers to do is to intervene in any kind of public event, public occurrence, where they believe they need or wish to stop someone and ask them questions. Okay, in other words, let's put it in a, in a different way, uh, take us away from the historical argument and think about one of the fundamental issues when it comes to contemporary policing. What vagrancy laws offer the police officer on the street is an absolute discretionary power, right? They are core to police discretion, yeah? So if I'm a police officer and I think that there's something not right about this person, I don't need to conjure up a reason to stop them other than to say that I've got the powers in my hand of the Vagrancy Act, which means I can stop someone under suspicion of doing this, that or the other. So in the book, I give the example of, look, what vagrancy laws do, what, what discretion does is it allows the police officers to stop me if I'm moving too fast, right? Because I could be running away from the scene of a crime. If I'm moving too slowly, because clearly I'm hanging around looking to break into a, a, ha- a home or I'm, 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 I'm looking for friends who are, who are shoplifting in a shop, right? Or for being stationary, right? Because clearly um, I'm, I'm looking to cause trouble or commit some other crime, right? Moving too fast, moving too slowly, not moving at all. All of those are grounds for police intervention in my, in, my, in my liberty, in my being, 
right? And that stems from vagrancy acts, right? So some states still have vagrancy acts on the books, which they use quite widely. Other states have abolished vagrancy acts, but have introduced the same kind of police discretionary powers uh, through other forms of legislation, right? Which uh, this is important, right? Because so so many of the the uh, police actions which get onto the TV screens on the front pages of newspapers where they encounter people on the street and end up brutalizing them or killing them stem from um, the use of police discretion. Yeah. They also stem, it's worth considering this, they also often stem from police discretion, uh, police, police officers' discretion, choice to use their discretionary powers where they think someone may be engaged in acts which are obtaining the means of subsistence outside of the wage. So classically, you'll find, you know, black men in America killed by police officers because they've been stopped, for example, from uh, using a what, what a shopkeeper thinks is a forged $20 bill or a $10 bill, right? Or uh, selling single cigarettes, which is illegal, yeah? <laughs> So we find in certain kind of police count encounters that have become very well known to us, uh, forms of police power that stem from policing vagrancy and which uh, pick up on the kind of discretionary powers that vagrancy legislation allows police officers. So if you like to put it kind of in, in both the, in the most abstract, but also the, the most particular terms, the vagrancy legislation has been his, it, central to the police role in the foundation of capitalism and is central to the everyday police violence we see on the streets. Right. I think that's really helpful. And I think there's also an interesting connection here with um, the way in which you, you talk about police as, as about property, um, particularly, you know, under, under liberalism and as police... Uh, developed alongside liberal thought. So, you know, we talk about how there's this this double freedom of the worker with Marx, right, where they have to, they're, it's a free to sell their labor, but they're also free of anything that they can do other than their labor. They actually have no, no, nothing that they can do other than sell their labor. Um, and so that's what vagrancy law is, is partly about, right? And, but there's also, when I start thinking about forms of policing connected to vagrancy in that sense, I think of the protection of or maintenance of property order, right? Like the criminalization of squatting or the fact that you can't choose to live in a vehicle on a street in the UK and kind of disciplining people into participating in particular kinds of property relations. That's part of that picture too. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the identification of maybe liberty with security under liberalism, but also how wage labor was imagined as a form of independence in liberal thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so if we go back to that, that little comment from Marx about police being the supreme concept of of bourgeois society, what Marx does in that comment is he links it with security. Um, and it's it's clear that he's moving from security to police and back to security from police and, and, and he's picking up on their their um, their the ways in which they are used to reinforce one another, right? Because of course we're told time and again that you know, police is necessary for our security. Now what's interesting is that Marx does that when he's kind of trying to work through uh, the, the, the liberal right of the revolutions of the 18th century. And he's going through the so-called rights of man, right? And he's picking up on the fact that, you know, these rights of man, the ones that we talk about most, liberty and equality, but he's picking up that in all of those documents, security appears. And I think he's picking up on the fact that actually within liberalism, although we're, we're told by liberals more than anything, but we're also told in the kind of the debate about liberalism that liberty is the fundamental concept, 
right? And political theory students are told time and again, right? You know, what's, what, you know, what's, what's more important, liberty or equality, right? And we, you can have that debate with, with students time and again, right? You know, what's more important is, you, you know, you, do you tax people to, re, you know, um, redistribute wealth or do you allow people to do what they want with their money, so, right? Um, actually, you know, in one sense, the fundamental debate is between liberty and security. And what's telling in the whole history of liberalism and in a sense, you can you you can you could see that played out over the last few years as well um, in relation to, for example, the pandemic. You could also see it played out in front of us right now as 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 the policing of the the mourners around the Queen's uh, funeral cortege is, is being played out. Right, but what's telling is that the whole history of liberalism actually says, you know, ultimately it's security that's more important. Right? That ultimately liber liberty must give way to security when we, and the we here is the state, but obviously the state is meant to be run by good liberals, in other words it's the liberal state, when we've decided that order is under threat or you know the good of the state, the, the, good, the well-being of the people is under threat, and we're the ones that decide that. Yeah? So in every liberal thinker you look at, you will find that liberty as an idea ultimately gives way to security, which is also why, you know, if you open any liberal constitution, you will find that there's a clause and usually more than one clause that says at some point the constitution allows for all of these liberties that we've just elaborated in the constitution, the constitution allows for all of those liberties to be suspended, right? And that's what we call the you know, state of emergency. So it's quite clear from liberal political philosophy, it's also quite clear from liberal constitutions that liberty is not the key idea of liberalism and the, and the liberal democratic state, it's security that's the key idea. And of course, what that means is that anything that is said to need to be necessary in the name of security is permitted, right? It's permitted for the good of the people, for the, for the, for the, for, for the, for the social order to be maintained. Um, and I think that's what Marx was, 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 was getting at. Now, in that discussion, what we need to do is pick up on what you were, I think, inquiring about, which is, which is property. Yeah. Because um, what's at stake when those liberal thinkers and the liberal constitutions really identify security as most important is security of property. Right, which takes us back to the discussion we were having just a few minutes ago, which is about, it was about capitalism, about the relationship between policing and capitalism. And what we find is another way in to an argument that's, that increasingly looks like police exist so that private property is maintained. Yeah, Police exists in order to protect the regime of property rights. We can just uh, we can also just connect some in the sense two of the big points that we've just we've just had in ways that you know could be quite useful or interesting, which is that you know closely related to the idea of property is the idea of propriety. Right, they go back centuries; they go hand in hand. Right, the idea of the proper. You know, what is proper behaviour? So proper, the proper propriety are connected to property but also once you allow for the idea that policing is conducted in the name of propriety you reinforce the idea of police discretion that we were talking about earlier right that there's a connection here between the point about discretion that we were discussing and and the idea of property that we've now raised yeah and that can be thought of through the idea of propriety, which connects the two. Of course, propriety is a very, very slippery idea. You know, who is to say what is proper and what isn't proper? Um, you know, so I mentioned the, the 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 Queen's funeral just a few minutes ago. It's interesting that you know one of the things that's that's developing in this. We're, we're, we you and I are speaking in this ten days of mourning. Yeah. Um, and what's emerging over the 10 days is that clearly enough Republicans have gone, okay, enough already, you know, this is too much, you know, this is, you know, it's one thing to mourn the death of, uh, of a human being, but it's another thing to celebrate the idea that we are just 
you know, a new sovereign, a new sovereign, a new head of state is is landed on us um, by a few costumed people in a big building in London, and we're supposed to all doff our caps, right? So, what's interesting is that some of the some of the mourning has been has has been confronted with Republican protesters, yeah, which has begged the question of whether this is proper or not, right? What is propriety here? You know, what should be taking place? In a, con in a condition of mourning. So interestingly, right, just a couple of days ago, one of the protesters, as you know, some, several protesters have been stopped and arrested and, and taken away and so forth. But one of the protesters held up a blank sheet of paper, right? And the police officer told him to put the blank sheet of paper down, right? And the reason the police officer gave for asking the protester to put the blank sheet of paper down is that he didn't know what the protester might write on the blank sheet of paper. And what the protester might write on the blank sheet of paper could be offensive to the people who were trying to mourn, right? <laughs> Which gives you a kind of interesting example of, of, of both police discretionary power, put that blank sheet of paper down because the blank sheet of paper could become offensive, but also the idea of propriety, that this police officer decided on themselves that holding up a blank sheet of paper was improper for the occasion. Right, yeah, I think that's a fantastic example. I mean, as you discuss elsewhere in the book, the, the idea that policing is, is about policing the class of poverty, and it's not about policing fundamentally the ruling class, even if they might fall afoul of laws from time to time, right? So we have the other example of someone being arrested, I think, for heckling Prince Andrew. Prince Andrew yeah. himself has, of course, more or less got off scot-free with what he's done. Absolutely, yeah. Well, he, he didn't get off scot-free. <laughs> he... he transferred a lot of money from his bank account to someone else's bank account. So in effect, he paid to get <laughs> off, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, oh, uh, some other intersections here, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So something that I think maybe we could talk a bit about what this means for, for subjectivity, because, you know, you're talking about proper conduct. And I know in the, in the book you talk a bit about the orientation of the subject around security, what does this mean for how we engage with the world as humans, how we understand ourselves? Sure. So one way to think about this is, is, is perhaps through this idea of, you know, the proper subject, who is the proper subject? Um, and it's quite clear from police accounts of their own beliefs and also how they go about policing that their idea of the proper subject is the good bourgeois subject. And by bourgeois here, I mean someone who accepts the premises of wage labor. Um, we can find this in, in lots of different ways. Uh, the most obvious, and you know, I, I think I mentioned this in, in the book is, you know, it's quite interesting when there's any form of disorder, you know, one of the comments that police officers will often make is you know the trouble with these people is they they should be at work right they need jobs just get proper jobs um, and if they're if police senior police officers are asked about you know this 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 notion of you know problematic kind of uh, problem families right they will often say well the problem is the father isn't working right it's it's often you know about you know what is the proper mode of being. And the proper mode of being in the full, in the eyes of police officers is 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 being a wage labourer, unless of course you're a property owner, right? Um, like you just you just intimated, right? There's you know there's all sorts of examples in which um, members of the ruling class get off scot free, um, whether that's engaged in the kind of um, criminal acts that um, Prince Andrew was engaged in or, you know, whether it's I don't know, corporate crimes, right? You know, the amount of um, destruction, both human and environmental, that is carried out by corporations um, is, 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 is shocking and stunning and will probably result in the, in the um, extinction of the human race, right? But, you know, do police forces do anything about it? Well, no, right? Because all of those things are done in the name of, 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 of profit and accumulation. And that 
it turns out to be okay, right? So, you know, what counts as proper is, you know, the bulk of the population is, is working, um, working in um, bona fide jobs, you know, not working in, in the black economy, um, is not skiving, is not um, trying to be, uh, is not trying to um, live off the back of the state illegally. Um, and that the ruling class and its leading corporations are free as free as possible to make as much money as possible without any restrictions. Well, I think this connects really interestingly to police's role in maintaining other forms of order, right? So not just class in the economic sense or property relations, but also to maybe gender relations. And this, again, also connects back to something we were talking about earlier, where you discuss in the book and show quite clearly that the use of discretionary or frankly illegal power by the police is actually essential to their function. So, for example, in what environmental activists have called rape by the state, where the UK police officers have formed long-term relationships while undercover with environmental activists and even fathered children. I think there's there's a few directions we could go in here. We could talk a bit about those recent revelations. I, I spoke to some of the women who were subjected to that in a previous podcast. We could also connect it to your more recent book about immunity. So perhaps that's something we could get to too. But yeah, could you tell me a bit about the, the sort of role in, of police in maintaining other forms of order? Yeah, sure. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, and you, you raised the question of, of, of gender. Um, but of course, we could equally ask um, questions after race, um, which is, of course, especially pressing in, in the US where racialized policing is so, so obvious. Um, and, you know, what, what counts as proper behavior, what counts as the proper subject and, and what that means in, in terms of um, police interventions in, in um, police assumptions about uh, black subjects, yeah. So we could go there, but since you've raised uh, gender, let's let's go with that. I mean, I think you're you're, you're absolutely right, um, and it's, I think it's quite interesting that um, a lot of the debate about police powers in the UK over the last two three years have been centrally focused on gender, in contrast to the, the US, where there's been so much um, so much in the way of, of focus on race and and black lives and uh, the idea of police abolition or defunding the police and so forth that that's come from a kind of a, a racial politics whereas in the UK what's been so obvious is is um well I guess to put it to put it bluntly a kind of you know the fundamentally patriarchal nature of police power uh, which in one sense isn't a surprise given its integral relationship to the history of capitalism and the history of the capitalist state and and how you know, patriarchal that has been for, for centuries. Um, although it is, of course, interesting that some of that is shifting, but policing just doesn't seem to shift, right? So, you, you know, it's classically, you've, you've raised the, the question of the undercover police officers that um, uh, infiltrated the environmental movement and formed relationships with, with women and had children with them and so forth. And that, that phrase, rape by the state, which I think is, is an incredibly powerful, powerful phrase. Um, I, 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 you know, we can take this, take that point back um, to some of the points we've already made, right? So, for, for example, one of the ways in which those police officers have defend them, defended themselves in inquiries has been precisely to say, look, we were using our discretion and uh, it's clear that our superiors, our officers, our superior officers, knew that we were using our discretion in that way, even though they say that they had told us we were not to use our discretion in that way. Um, you know, the idea that uh, police officers should have the freedom to infiltrate people's lives in that way is just quite astonishing. And it gives you some idea of, um, of the extent to which, you know, the state and the ruling class believe policing should extend, right, to that very, that, that very level of intimacy. You know, we can also think about it in, in other terms. I mean, you know, it's quite amazing when you think that, you know, police officers are, uh, you know, the, the profession for the highest rate of domestic violence is police officers, right? Um, so not only do we, 
you know, not only are we being rather naive in thinking that policing would ever actually deal with domestic violence, it turns out that actually a large proportion of the domestic violence is being carried out by police officers themselves, right? So it's not a surprise to find that when they deal with levels of, uh, deal with um, for cases of domestic violence, this they seriously under-police them, right? Either, either by giving a warning or by encouraging the woman not to proceed or by making uh, suggestions that this wouldn't be in the best possible interest, her po best possible interest, um, or of course cases just falling apart because you know police evidence has been gathered badly and so forth. Yeah, um, none of that should really. I mean, it, it, in one sense, of course, it's shocking, but in another sense, it shouldn't shock us because we should expect it because the police power is so fundamentally uh, patriarchal. Um, and this, of course, is also you know why um, you know the policing of, of 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 sex workers, for example, is so is so um, horrible, right? And all of this takes us back to the idea of the you know the ideal subject, right? Who is who is the ideal subject here? And it's quite clear that you know for the police institution, the ideal subject in in gender terms is 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 a woman who knows her place. Right, absolutely. And yeah, there's a lot of directions we could take this discussion in terms of disciplining of subjects of all kinds. I think maybe this would be a good point to pivot to asking you about, well, why did you write the new introduction to this book as you did? Why did you feel that now was the time for a new edition of this book? And um, how do you see things as having changed or not changed since the first edition of this book, which was published in 2000? Mm, okay, so in one sense, this is a this is a question about writing rather than policing. So, I, I was encouraged to go through to to think about a new edition in conversations with the new publisher. So the first edition was published by Pluto, whereas this new edition is published by Versa. Um, and I had conversations with uh, the commissioning editor there, and and thought it would be a good idea. Um, there were different ways in which a new edition could go. I mean, obviously, one can write a new edition and rewrite all of the chapters and so forth. And I didn't particularly wanted to do that. I didn't want to do that. Um, so the, the kind of compromise was a, a what turned out to be a very long introduction to the new edition. Um, because I think it's probably you know, the best part of a fifth of the new book or so, something like that, maybe even a quarter. Um, and what I tried to do there was try and explain, you know, what had you know, what had happened in the intervening 20 years. Um, and by that, I mean, what had happened to my thinking, but also what had happened um, in relation to ideas about policing. So in, in terms of the first, uh, my thinking, um, what happens in that the first edition of the book is that there's a couple of chapters that are organized around the idea of ordering insecurity. Um, and out of that, I developed a, what became a book called Critique of Security, which was then published in 2007. So seven years after the first edition of that police book. And so I took those two chapters and I used them as a way of really developing the argument about security. Um, so the argument about police power became, a, became the basis of the critique of security, which is, um, which is you know, set at one distance from critical security studies as well. Um, when also at the same time, what I started thinking about was uh, war. And so I started working with three concepts together, security, war, police. Um, and that wasn't just about war in terms of how we usually use the term war. What I was also trying to do when thinking about war was to think about what it is, what it is that's going on when police officers talk about themselves as, for example, engaged in a war on crime. What is it that's going on when politicians talk about a war on poverty? Um, in other words, what interests me is not just wars in terms of what we now, what we understand as military encounters between states, but if you like the social wars of modernity, the police wars that are taking place time and again, you know, what hangs on the idea of a war on drugs, right? That, that connects policing to, if you like, warring, yeah? Um, and in the process of doing that, what I also wanted to do was to try and think about pacification as an idea and policing as pacification, security as pacification. So what happens in the, in the uh, 
in the introduction is that some of those arguments about security, about war, about pacification uh, uh, come come through. Um, and I was so I was trying to kind of you know, broaden the argument about policing out to include some of those claims. At the moment, I am I'm trying to finish a book definitively on pacification, and obviously, I'll look forward to talking to you in eighteen months' time or so when you ask me to come on again. Um, but at the same time, um, what had also happened in in the, that sort of intervening, not quite twenty year period, was a whole range of struggles over police powers. Um, so it was. It, I finished the new edition and the new introduction. You know, in the early days of of Black Lives Matter, and in particular the very early days of police abolition arguments in the states. But what I do in that introduction. Um, is I try and pick up on some of the issues that uh, concern uh, the police abolition movement, defunding police, Black Lives Matter, um, and situate them within the broader, broader argument. So, for example, I connect the question of police discretion and what that means for policing on the street to you know, the kind of what, what goes in the, in the introduction as the, the absolute powers that police have. Right, because I think it's important for those those movements against police powers to understand precisely how absolute police powers really are. You know, we have to know what it is we're up against, right? Because I'm I'm very, you know, I'm hugely supportive of uh, campaigns against police powers, but I I fear that you know that, that they'll end up in just a very minor reform here and there and not much else. Um, and so I think understanding the absolute nature of police power is a way of going, okay, okay, if we're serious about police abolition, then we need to actually be thinking far more broadly about the relationship between police and, and capital. And what I also do um, is to try and touch a little bit on some aspects of, of, of those campaigns, which I think require um, broader thinking. So I'll give you an example. And, you know, if you like, you can ask me then about this idea of immunity because it comes up in the, the politics of immunity book but you know one of the things that um one of the things the things that those police campaigns often come up against is the is the sheer injustice of police killings police brutalities and no police officer getting prosecuted and the problem is that what they encounter is that you know police have this thing called immunity or as it's sometimes described in some states, qualified immunity, but it's not very qualified, right? And this is a problem, and it's one of the problems that really uh, uh, drives campaigns against police powers, right? Because there is a fundamental injustice, right? If you see your your son or your 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 partner or your brother, you know, killed by police officers, and then the police officers walk, um, you know, that sense of injustice is going to be burning, and it's never going to. It's never going to go away, right? So, so police immunity is fundamental to the problem of police power, and it's fundamental to the sense of injustice a lot of people have when they encounter excessive police force, police violence, police brutality, police killing, and so forth. And I think so. To kind of you know preempt your question here, I'll just you know spiral out if you if you don't mind. Um, what I think we need to understand is that police officers are ambassadors of the state and i'm using that term ambassador deliberately because the original figures that had immunity were ambassadors right the early modern state ambassadors traveling from one sovereign territory to another they had to be given immunity from that new that sovereign that sovereign's powers right this is where we get the idea of the immunity of the embassy embassy and ambassador were once the same term they were ambassadors and what we now call diplomatic immunity, right? So the, those frustrations that we all found, those minor frustrations, how is it that a diplomat can build up 10,000 pounds of car fines and not, not pay them, not, not, and not have to pay them, right? Is also connected to the other forms of diplomatic um, immunity, such as, for example, the, the murder and dismemberment of, um, of a, uh, uh, American journalist in the Saudi embassy in Turkey, right? So the original immunity is attached to ambassadors, to diplomats, 
And I think it's important to situate the police figure and also the soldier figure, the figure of the, 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 the military personnel, in that long history of immunity for servants of the state. Right, so that when the police officer is engaged in that street encounter, they, they know this at some level, and often it's just an unconscious level because they don't get training in police immunities, right? But they know at some level that they are kind of untouchable, right? Because they are carrying out their acts in the name of the state. They are literally representatives of the state. They are ambassadors of state power, right? So, and until that gets chiseled away and, and, and finally overturned, and I, I, I'm doubtful that it's going to happen, but I think it would be a good way to focus a campaign, you know, those police brutalities, those police killings are going to carry on. Right. I think that's really helpful and also a good pitch for people to uh, go and check out our previous interview on your newer book, The Politics of Immunity, Security and the Policing of Bodies, which was also released with Verso in March 2022. And yeah, check that out too in, in conjunction with this one. That's a helpful pairing. Is there anything else you've been working on that you'd like to talk about? Mark. Well, like I, like I say, Kat, I'm trying to now push my previous arguments about pacification into, into one book. I've developed the argument in, in articles and in uh, part of the chapter in the War Power, Police Power book. It appears in the introduction to the new edition of Critical Theory of Police Power. Um, but I think finally I need to um, sit down and 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 write the book on pacification. It's nearly there. I'm hoping to get it done in the next, um, I don't know, six, eight months or so. Not not sure. Maybe a year. So that's the next big project. And then the one after that is a book on suicide, which is about suicide. But of course, suicide is an interesting phenomenon in relation to police because police intervene in our liberties. <laughs> if we want to kill ourselves, um, even where we don't want them to intervene, right? So there's countless cases, not just of police officers talking someone down from a bridge, but for example, breaking down the front door of someone's home in order to confiscate their drugs that they've saved up for when they want to take their own lives because they've decided that enough is enough. So those are the next two projects. All right. Okay. I look forward to hearing more about them. I think for now, that's a great place for us to end. So it's been wonderful talking with you today, Mark. Thank you for coming on the show. And thank you, everyone else, for tuning in today. Once again, my name is Katriona Gold, and I've been speaking with Mark Neocleus about the new edition of his important book, A Critical Theory of Police Power, The Fabrication of Social Order, which was republished by Verso in 2021. I highly recommend picking up a copy from your local bookstore, direct from Verso, or any other ethical retailer. Thanks for listening, and thanks again, Mark, for joining me today. Thank you very much, Kat. Nice to talk to you.